Ladies and gentlemen, in his native land, he was a king, but he comes before you in chains for your own amusement. Presenting Homer, the eighth wonder of the world. Wow, look at the size of that platform. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film. Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpsons joke come from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me, as always, is the Carl Denham to my Jack Driscoll, my co-host, Nate Story. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. You know, we're recording this right after Canadian Thanksgiving, and... I'm drinking something very appropriately Canadian here in the United States. It is a whiskey that was, uh, it's made by Wayne Gretzky. Oh. It's a, a Canadian whiskey, and it's aged in ice wine casks. It's possibly of course it is. the most Canadian thing I've ever found at an airport duty-free, uh, <laughs> and I got it just for Canadian Thanksgiving. It's better than it should be. Yeah, I was going to say, the only thing that would make it more Canadian is if it was, like, maple-flavored. Which also would yeah, be... I wouldn't drink it then if, if it was me. No, no, that's but that would anyway. Be good. I'm good. I'm feeling very Canadian. We also have a special guest with us today, who I want to introduce before we go any further. Uh, Dee Dee Crimmins. She's a film critic for Rue Morgue, Polygon, and our very own That Shelf, among many other publications. Welcome, Dee Dee. Thanks for joining thanks. us. Thanks, thanks. I'm so excited to talk about The Simpsons because I do that not being recorded all the time. So this is very exciting. Yeah, that's kind of like Nate and I. We it's it's lovely that we finally have found a way. I was gonna say to make money off of our. We're not making any money though. So, but no. um, yeah, that we've now managed to convince other people to listen to us yap about The Simpsons. So, um, so thank you very much for joining us and joining in in our uh, our our banter and repartee this evening. And to that end, this week we watched the original King Kong, which was, believe it or not, released 90 years ago in 1933. And while we missed the anniversary of the film, we actually, as long as everything works properly and I don't screw up the scheduling in Squarespace, uh, we are <laughs> releasing this episode on the next best day, director Marion C. Cooper's birthday. So happy 130th birthday, Marion. <laughs> It uh, doesn't look a day over 96. Uh, you might remember King Kong from such Simpson episodes as season two's Bart Gets an F and Dead Putting Society, season four's Treehouse of Horror 3, season five's Boy Scouts in the Hood, season 10's Monty Can't Buy Me Love, season 11's Faith Off, and season 12's Homer and Simpson Safari. But today, specifically, we're going to be talking about Treehouse of Horror 3, which is season four, episode five. Didi, I hear you're a huge horror fan. What is it about that genre that's so appealing to you? Oh my God, do we have like six hours? So um, <laughs> I have been a lifelong horror fan. I was raised in a very genre-focused household. Like I grew up going to science fiction conventions, went to my first oh, wow. Worldcon when I was six. So wow. like big, big, deep nerd roots with me. <laughs> and I end up kind of going a bit of the horror route just because... I've always loved them. I love being scared, even though it's more and more difficult the older I think everyone gets to get like that. Um, 
when I hit college and I realized you could study movies and they would give you a degree and you could just watch a lot of horror movies and talk about that. I mean, it's much more complicated than that, but it's much more fun to dismiss it like that. <laughs> so I got really, really into horror film, very much so in college and also ended up going to grad school and I have a um, master's degree in horror film theory. Oh, wow. So like big nerd cool. props. But yeah, I love how analytical you can get with it. I love just how creepy it is. Honestly, like one of my favorite things though is that you can sit down with anyone and just be like, hey, what movie did you see too young? Like you don't even have to mm -hmm. say like, what was your favorite horror movie? Like nearly every person <laughs> I've ever met has a like, oh my God, there was this, or oh, I saw this film and it's not a horror film, but it scared the crap out of me. And right. why Why is it Labyrinth and those guys who try to take your heads off? <laughs> like, I, I just love that there's like a universality of it and I don't know, there's always the next best thing. Like, I'm always looking forward in horror film and, like, what's coming out in the next month, the next year. And there's always horror. Like, there's not always a musical. There's always horror. Mm -hmm. And there's always it's interesting true. stuff. And there's always new stuff to be afraid of. And I love that. Yeah, it's one of those wonderful genres that, because it's relatively cheap to produce for oh, whatever yeah. reason, they're always churning them out. I mean, literally, there's an entire streaming service, Shudder, the, the streaming mm -hmm. service dedicated to horror movies. And just, like, there's so much stuff on there. Is there one that, to your question of, like, a movie that you saw too young or whatever, what is the original horror movie that sort of, like, you know, triggered this love for you or that like stands out as the definitive film in your horror, you know, love language or whatever? Oh, that's a really <laughs> great question. I don't think I've ever talked about this too much because usually like my favorite film is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. My most studied mm -hmm. version of film is like I actually have published quite a lot on George Romero and he's just like tops for me. But the film that like really freaked me out so much to the point where I was like, I need to understand this was... My sister, who we'll get to in a second when we talk about The Simpsons, she is a year and 10 months older than me, and it is a very younger sister thing of me to not say that she's two years older than me. We got to keep it tight. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> so she had a bunch of friends over one night, and they all rented Candyman, like old school, go to the, oh, like, the yeah, video yeah, yeah. store, yeah. rent Candyman. And I kind of like hung out in the back of my parents' like giant sectional couch and watched it, and it scared me so much and I never for a second like I grew up in the middle of nowhere very not urban at all I never thought Candyman was coming to get me but I could not sleep for like almost a week at wow. that point I loved it oh, so wow. much yeah and it was wasn't just like oh my god I've made a big mistake it's just like oh can I do this again like yeah totally yeah. I, I love those sorts of stories my brother-in-law when he was young probably like eight or nine or something like that he used to stand with the door open to his room and he could look out onto the living room and he would always be watching whatever his dad was watching on the TV at like, you know, 8, 9, 10 p.m. at night. And so uh, that's like how he watched like all of CSI, basically. That's <laughs> <laughs> like an under 10 year old. Have you seen Candyman, Nate? I haven't. I Again, you know, it's one of those ones that I keep hearing about all the time and I feel like I need to dig into. I am kind of a horror novice, so I'm excited to talk to you more about this genre. Oh my God. See, like... I get excited when I meet people who either don't like horror or haven't had a huge exposure to it because I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so excited for you to watch all this stuff. And I'm going to give you a list and you're going to watch <laughs> it and then we're going to talk about it and you're going to be excited and want to see more. Like, I mean, seeing a film for the first time and it's your next favorite film, that's the best feeling. Yeah, like, really. And you mm -hmm. get to do that so much more when you watch Candyman now, Nate. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I, I'm totally here for it. I feel like 
one of my discoveries as an adult was like John Carpenter. And, and oh, yeah. I suddenly realized yeah. I love John Carpenter. We just watched They Live the other <gasps> night for the very first time and loved it. It's just so much fun. So like goofy, creepy, <laughs> like, you know, there's a little bit of social commentary in a lot of his movies. Like, it's great. Longest fight scene ever. <laughs> yes, totally. Right in the middle of that movie. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, why not? And then I guess we should also talk about The Simpsons. What, Like, what's your relationship with that show? Oh, man. So I love The Simpsons so much. I'm still watching it. You know, start, oh. started season 35 a couple wow. weeks ago. I'm still okay. in it. All right. For, I've also, I've resubscribed to Disney Plus just for the explicit task of rewatching The Simpsons in order. I feel like talking about being raised in a genre house in my next anecdote, like my parents are not as cool as they might seem. I feel like everyone's going to say that, but I grew up with my parents um, taking us to traveling animation shows. So I saw The Simpsons like pre-Tracy Ullman even. Like we were very little kids and it was sometimes not necessarily age appropriate stuff, but my parents were like, yeah, whatever. Like we watched R-rated movies when we were four and no one gave a shit. Um, And (laughs) so I remember when it came on Fox, even as a very young child, I was like, oh, I know this. Like I've seen these characters before. And so we started watching them very, very early. So once I went into syndication, I watched it, you know, every single night. I remember very specifically, we could tell what time of year it was based on if it was light out or not when The Simpsons came on. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, because Sunday's at eight. Like, yeah. Exactly. That was a thing. And so my sister and I have always had this giant love for The Simpsons. And it's one of the ways that we very specifically bond. Like, she lives literally on the other side of the earth from me right now. And we still, like, send each other Simpsons memes regularly. And it's just something that we've been able to really kind of hold on together. Like, when I was watching this episode... I took a picture of my TV, which I often do, and I sent it to her, and it was just like, you know, the Frogert is also cursed. The Frogert is also cursed. That's bad. <laughs> That's one of the stories. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, I say that all the time. And Anyway, so it's just, I have a Simpsons tattoo. Like, it is a, such an yeah. important part of not only my past, but, like, how I currently experience, like, the world and everything. Like, it's it's hard to oversell how much it means to me. Totally. Yeah, I think I've told this story before on the show, but when I went in for my interview at TIFF, I was working for a TV series, and so I sort of, like, went to the interview kind of off the cuff, because they had, like, reached out to me and said, like, we have this role, do you want to apply, blah, blah, blah. So I go into the interview, and I casually, as I often do, just, like, dropped a Simpsons quote in my interview, (laughs) and one of the people on the interview committee like responded with another Simpsons reference. And that was the moment when I was like, okay, like I think I found the place where I need to be. It's the stonecutter's handshake, if you will. It's like a secret code that for people of our generation, like if you find someone who like gets that, then you know, like, oh, these are my people. We're going to get along just fine. Absolutely. Sort of how Adam and I initially bonded to and way back at the beginning of high school as well. It's just that deep connection over, you know, what we'd now call probably Simpsons memes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That that and Sierra Adventure Games. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of weird random pop culture things like that, for sure. Oh, well, I, before we go too deep into Nate and my high school history, <laughs> which, believe me, you do not want to sit and listen to, uh, let's unpack 
uh, Treehouse of Horror, why don't we? So, original air date, October 29th, 1992. So, this is one of those rare episodes that actually aired very, very close to Halloween, which is always, mm-hmm. always fun. Uh, directed by Carlos Baeza. And the segment we're talking about, King Homer, was written by Jay Kogan and Wallace Walidarski, one of my all-time favorite Simpson writer names. Uh, it's That's just, a good name. Yeah, Wally Walidarski, so good. Uh, and this episode has the seventh most references in the first 13 seasons, with a total of 14 movie references, including seven scene or plot parodies, which is crazy. Watching it back tonight, I was like, yeah, there is a lot of references to not only King Kong, but like other pop culture movies. You know, there's Alfred Hitchcock Presents, there's Clockwork Orange, Mm -hmm. there's so much in this thing. Well, it's like, who let Bart watch Clockwork Orange? Right? I was was like, did he get his hands on like a bootleg VHS or something? Like, how did he see that movie as a 10-year-old in Springfield? (laughs) Stupid party. Wish we was trick-or-treating. I mean, we like just did Full Metal Jacket, and I feel like a big (laughs) part of the Simpsons MO is sort of taking these very, very disturbing things and sort of slipping them into things that feel less scary, like... We were talking about the episode Dead Putting Society where Homer <laughs> tells Bart to name his putter and he ends up naming it Charlene, which is what like Private Pyle names his rifle in Full Metal Jacket, right? So it's like, it's pretty sinister, but like, if you don't know the reference, it, it seems totally no. harmless. Same totally. kind of thing, I feel like, where it's like, yeah, you know, how did Bart know what a droog <laughs> looks like exactly? I don't know. Or how they speak. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um... One of the things that Nate and I sort of have been discussing throughout this is that this is one of the rare sort of front-to-back plot parodies where they're actually just sort of retelling the story of King Kong through the lens of The Simpsons and is quite possibly the only fully black-and-white segment in the first 13 seasons. And I have to say, it looks really good. I love what they've done with this Mm -hmm. sequence. Yeah, absolutely. I love the framing of it. Like, we'll get to all that. But yeah. Did you guys, this is a total side. I think it was in season 34. And I realize most people aren't still with it. And I respect that decision. They have an entire like third man episode. Oh, no way. Yeah. Ooh. And I'm just like, oh, and I have man. a third man. I have a third man tattoo. So I'm like, everybody, guys, they did Orson Welles. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Cool. You're, you're convincing me. I need to go back. <laughs> yeah. I love you the third to go. man. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Yeah. So one of the things we like to sort of discuss when we're discussing these parodies is like why this like why did the simpsons writers decide to parody this movie specifically so nate you did a little bit of research into sort of how this came to be do you want to sort of talk us through why they decided to go with king kong a movie which at the time would have been like 70 years old I mean, right, it's 90 right. now, but, you know, it would have been about old 70 then years too. old at that point. Yeah, 60 years old, I guess. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, this is one of those rare ones where they talk about it at length in the commentary, which is really helpful. But, like, even before that, you know, as you pointed out, there are episodes before this where they're parodying King Kong. Yeah. And I think, like, one of the initial things seems to just be that, you know, Homer looks like an ape. you know it's a basic thing but like so there's just like all these gags early on like in dead putting society where homer looks like the ape at the mini putt course right right? or little things like that that kind of draw the connection and so much like many things that we've talked about before it starts as like a little thing and then they're like why wouldn't we do a full version of that where homer is the ape right i mean one of the weird things about this parody is that 
all of the characters seem to be playing a role in the mm. in the movie. They're all right. aware that they're playing a role. So, like, right. you know, Marge knows Homer as King Homer and is sort of, like, giggling when he's picking her up and stuff like that. And, like, Lenny knows Homer. <laughs> it's, like, this weird kind of meta commentary. But I feel like it's just kind of a fun way to, like, cast all these characters into different roles and then play off their relationships in the show, usually. Then on top of that, I think just, like, a lot of the writers seem to really like King Kong. Right. Um, Apparently, the idea came from Sam Simon, who was, you know, mm. a really big fan of King Kong and obviously like one of the early producers of the show. Right. And he invited Al Jean to come and watch it at his house. And Al Jean watched it. And on the commentary, he's like, the thing that surprised me most is just how long it takes to get to King Kong. Um, it's like you're yep. like halfway through the movie before you ever see King Kong. We'll talk about it. Yeah. No. For <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. We'll get there. But apparently Wally Walidarski, coming back to that great name, he also was like obsessed with this movie and he talks about it on the commentary. And it actually reminded me of like watching The Simpsons as a kid, mm -hmm. because apparently this was one of those movies that would constantly be on TV. Um, he right. said that there was a time in New York when at noon on Channel 9, they would show the same movie every day through the week. And he watched this movie five times in one week. Holy crap. <laughs> which i just love that so yeah i think they're just deeply geeky about king kong i think that's a big part of what's going on matt Groening on the commentary also says that this is one of his favorite treehouse of horror segments mm. and i think that that kind of speaks to what you were saying of just like how good this looks of yeah. like the quality of the animation and the attention to detail of like how they're parodying the visual style of this film is really on point yeah, one of the things I noticed was, like, how accurate to, like, replicating shots throughout it, it it was. And I have to imagine this is one of those films that was available on VHS, even in those early days of home video. It was probably, like, very cheap. I, I don't know if it's in the public domain, but I imagine it was, you know, accessible. So they probably were able to, like, get a copy of it. And unlike some of the other more modern movies or movies that weren't necessarily available at that point on home video, they probably had a, were able to, like, literally reference it and replicate exact shots. Because I can't imagine any other way they could have gotten so close. Because it is, like, I was shocked at how much some of the staging and blocking and composition is literally, like, it, it, I'm sure if you were to put them side by side, which Nate will eventually do, um, <laughs> we'll see like how accurate it is. And they do such a fantastic job of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, even yeah. like most of the writers would have grown up during the era when there was like always some sort of like a horror host on TV yeah. showing a mm -hmm. film that was in public domain, probably black and white, probably this a lot. And also they would have been around when there was the remake and so this yep. was like definitely something that this even though it's a you know a much much older film even for us like this is something that was very much present in you know the zeitgeist that's how people thought about things like it wasn't something that had been completely lost like i don't feel like you know like Lugosi's white zombie probably wasn't as made hmm. you know played on the playground by these kids but king kong <laughs> definitely would have been totally yeah totally. i mean it's it, 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 we'll get into this but like you know i actually hadn't seen the film until watching it for this episode but oh. like of course i knew what king kong was like it's just mm -hmm. it, it's right. in the zeitgeist and it's one of those things and we talk about that a lot on our show is just like cultural osmosis these things that you just know because 
it's so popular and it's been parodied or referenced or pastiched or whatever the case may be. King Kong is just like, everybody knows what King Kong is, even if you haven't seen the original film. So I imagine, yeah, even some of the writers probably, like Al Jean saying, like Sam Simon's inviting him over to watch (laughs) it. He's probably familiar with it, but that's the first time he's sitting down to actually watch the film. Was there anything else in the episode that, like, jumped out at you guys? I, I I have to say, and we've talked about this before, Didi, I'm not a, usually a huge fan of the Treehouse of Horror episodes <gasps> because they kind of... Because he's a monster. Because <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I'm a horrible human being. No, but if you're a like, monster, you should like this. Monsters, right? Like yeah, no, exactly. No, I think True it's enough. just it's it's the non-canonical nature of them, or or the fact that when you're watching season four DVDs in December or you know in March, and then you get to the Halloween episode, it's always just sort of like kind of feels out of place, <laughs> but. <laughs> this is one that I vividly remember having seen many, many times. I don't know if it was just in high syndication rotation or whatever, but there's a, a lot of gags in this episode that are just like so, so great. Some great like freeze frame stuff. Like I, the, the newspaper saying Dick Cavett was born, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Dick Cavett references. The other thing I noticed in the third segment, the dial Z for zombie, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the the goof of Snowball 1 being black instead of white, you know, so I hope, right. some, I hope somebody got fired for that blunder. Um, <laughs> and unsurprisingly, I love that Bart's wearing the Thriller LP as a headpiece while he's summoning the zombies. Yeah, yeah, and like the whole like Frogurt is evil. That's good. That's bad. Like oh. I say that when I choose what I'm going to wear in yes. the morning. Like that's just part of my brain at this point. <laughs> that first segment is is fantastic. That that segment's so good. Yeah. Really that's good. that's so I think funny. my favorite one in this episode. I have a lot of respect for for the king the the king Homer segment and the the third one's also pretty good, but that first one is just pretty much gold from front to back. And the framing device, at least when we get to see Bart yeah. dressed up for me, Kubrick film. And I feel like that works really well because it's just like Marge being the most Marge and trying to serve the kids candy. And like Homer eating right. all of the different props that they're trying to like get freaked yeah. out by. Like, yeah. yeah. These are her brains. Yeah. Yo, Mom, we haven't got the eyeballs yet. Homer, you're ruining it. Yeah, well... It was an evil game. That itself, it's not a segment, but it's just, it's so delightful. And it just feels like so them. But it also Mm -hmm. does something that we've, sometimes the direction kind of doesn't get enough credit. And there's that Mm -hmm. beautiful transition from Grandpa, because Grandpa introduces the King Homer segment. And the (laughs) sort of like the lights behind him, the lights, there's no actual lights because it's a cartoon, but the what would be lights in a live action film sort of disappear and then there's this subtle transition into black and white to take us into the black and white segment it's really beautifully done and again i i don't think this show gets enough credit for the artistry of the cinematography and the filmmaking that these animators have the tendency to do you know like this king homer segment does an incredible job of replicating the cinematography from the film but even outside of that when they're just doing what they're doing the choices they're making on their own there's some really really great stuff that you don't get to normally see on the show because they're doing a parody of king kong whenever they dive deep into like a specific film you can tell that there's like almost like a palatable like affection from the animators and from yeah. the mm-hmm. filmmakers they like they want to do well by this property that they clearly adore and also Absolutely. like i gotta talk about the grandpa bit like 
the fact that Grant, they're like all taking turns telling stories because it's Halloween night and they're all hanging out. And then someone says like, Grandpa, like, oh, you have, you've lived an interesting life. He's like, you know, that's not true, but I've watched a lot of movies. Yeah, that's a lie and you know it. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Like, I feel like I want to say that to people if they like ever say that, like, oh, you're interesting. It's like, that's a lie and you know it. But I have seen a lot of movies. <laughs> Grandpa's so great. And it's funny. My grandfather used to love when I would watch The Simpsons. And for whatever reason, he like really liked Grandpa. He did not find like the show to be offensive as a grandfather. He found it really endearing. And uh, he was also a Freemason. Like he was <laughs> the, like, oh, and yeah. And so he loved the Stonecutter episode. And then from that point on, he referred to the Freemasons as Stonecutters. So he'd be like, oh, I went to my Stonecutters meeting last night. And I uh, don't think I've ever heard that story from you. That's yeah, hilarious. no, that's her, that is. Her, and when this is a ta tangent that we'll probably edit out out of respect for my <laughs> grandfather. But when he passed away, we had a sort of like a wake, like a, a visitation or whatever. And I guess the Freemasons, they do, they do a special ceremony. But my parents didn't bother to tell us that this was happening. So all of a sudden, my sister and I are at the funeral home and this parade of men in full Freemason garb start like walking, <laughs> walking into the funeral wow. home. And they're like, oh the, the lead guy's wearing like a giant headdress and they're all carrying like cedar and they're putting the cedar in the casket. And my sister and I just like look at each other and we're like, what the is going on like, and, and, and after it's all over like we both go up to my dad and we're like you couldn't have mentioned that this was gonna be happening like we're trying so hard not to like burst into laughter because we're like, what is this so yeah so wow but i just think it's very funny that for the rest of time we've referred to my my grandfather as a stone cutter but <laughs> well jumping jumping now to the film king kong as we said it's hard to believe but it is a 90 year old picture they were they kept referring to it as a picture in the film and i like that term we need to bring that back calling movies pictures i like to call them talkies yeah <laughs> dd one of the things we always ask each other is how would you describe or sum up this movie in a sentence um <laughs> it, do it doesn't have to like be to ask it because because uh, i never come up with something any good no i'm just thinking like it's very much a film with a giant ape yet he's not the biggest monster like, mm. that's good that's way better than what we normally come up with yeah you got it you nailed gentlemen, it gentlemen I'm a professional here <laughs> I was going to say someone clearly has a master's degree in horror cinema that's for sure what was your background with this film like I assume maybe uh, unlike me you had seen this before this week I have yes I've seen it before this week but I'm really happy you watched it for the first time and I want to hear about that I have seen this many times growing up. I have seen this like in 35 millimeter on the big screen on several occasions. Mm, wow. I've seen all the remakes. I love the Peter Jackson remake. I watched it again last night to just kind of be like, it's been a couple of years since I'd watched it, but I, right. I love how pre-code this film is. Like Fay Ray's nipples are everywhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I'm a staunch fan of this film. I tend to be drawn to films where there are monsters, but they're the, not the monsters in the film. So, like, it's not like I haven't said mm -hmm. that before, even though you guys were amazed by it. But it was just, like, um, <laughs> films where the monster actually exposes the monstrous in humanity. I'm always drawn to those sort of things, even if after the pack. I'm like, oh, that's why I like this movie. Nate, what about you? Had you seen this before? No. So I had not seen it before either. 
I saw the re- the Peter Jackson remake in theaters back in 2005 or whenever it came out. But yeah, I had never seen the original. I've never seen any of the other remakes. So this was like completely fresh for me. For this, I, I watched the 1933 original and then I actually rewatched the Peter Jackson remake as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like the first time I saw it, I had no context for like what he was trying to do. And, uh, you know, it's very much like a a contemporary kind of remake where there's a lot of nostalgia. There's a lot of sort of legacy sequel sort of vibes going on, even though it's not a sequel. But that whole sort of like recycling of content in a very nostalgic mode, I feel like, is a big part of that movie. So it was kind of fun to rewatch it through that lens. Well, and obviously I've already spoiled it, but I had not (laughs) seen the movie (laughs) until watching it this week. But I think I might be the only one in the room who can say this. I have seen the musical. Oh, that's right. Yes. So I I saw the Broadway musical King Kong. I guess it would have been (laughs) 2019. Like just Yeah, I think it was the summer before the pandemic. I saw it like weeks before it closed. It is, it's a wild show. Yes, there's a sequence where Faye Ray sings, or sorry, not Faye Ray, but the character played by Faye Ray, uh, sings about her love for the giant ape in a, in a, like a serious, like musical power ballad. It features music by like the French electronic duo Justice. It is a weird, <laughs> weird musical. But the big draw and the reason I went is because there was a giant King Kong puppet that was, you know, puppeteered by like 15 people or whatever. And it is genuinely worth the price of admission because it was just like it, seeing that on stage, like the level of spectacle of seeing this giant ape that is fully articulated and everything. It was very, very cool. Totally forgettable musical. Couldn't remember a single song or anything else from it, but the the puppet was impressive. <laughs> did you remark about how big the platform was? I, I did not. No. Okay. <laughs> Didi, you'll appreciate that the, the only reason I know this previously is because Adam brought it up on our Planet of the Apes episode. Ah. Yes. yes. <laughs> did, I'm yes. like, did you see the Planet of the Apes musical? Well, the movie or the planet? No, but I hadn't seen it. I again, I was like one of those weird kids that had like would go to the library and take out monster movie books. I was obsessed, or I guess technically still am obsessed with the Phantom of the Opera, and so anything related to the Phantom of the Opera, I I absorbed. And he was obviously one of the universal monsters, quasi unofficially the Claude that Claude Rains. I think is like 1943 film. So I would you know get the book that had that and because you know king kong was one of the universal monsters i was like aware of this and special effects books that i would take out and like it's such a classic film that again i was very very familiar with the iconography but somehow just managed to avoid seeing the actual film despite the fact that like growing up i wouldn't say i was as much of a horror genre nerd as as you are dd but like mm-hmm. i did see a lot of classic horror at a very very early age because i was just like obsessed with movies and watched anything and everything but somehow this sort of slipped through the cracks so i was really excited to sort of sit down and watch it even if i had to marvel at how very very dated it ended up being or (laughs) feeling anyways but before we get into all that should we do a plot synopsis for those of us who maybe haven't seen the film yeah so this is a press book Back from 1933 from RKO, 
um, nice. promoting the film, not to the public, but to people who would be showing it at the movie theater. So it's kind of long-winded, but I found a chunk that is probably as close as we could find to a plot synopsis. I'll do it in my best 1930s newsreel voice. Just <laughs> you read that line. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so <clears throat> if you'll Didi, just it, we're both theater school nerd. Like you can yeah. see the smile on my face. People yeah. can't hear it, but you can see it. Okay, great. So you'll you'll appreciate. <laughs> oh, this. I'm so, so in. Here we go. <clears throat> Gargantuan creatures born in time's first morning stalk the earth again. Kong, whose voice was thunder, whose fury was like an angry lash of the sea, whose strength uprooted trees, and whose ruled a kingdom of monsters is hurled into this modern world of 1933 to cope with civilization and pit his brute power against the death-dealing implements of man. With a single blow, he crushed motor cars, airplanes, grass from the sky crumbled like matchboxes in his mammoth paw. Yet some strange power linked him today when he first beheld that beautiful white girl who invaded his realm. Demon? Ape? Or perhaps the last fragment of a breed of man who trod the earth when it was young? Some strange power bridged ten million years and gave the soul of a lover to a giant big as a battleship. Bravo. I guess that's a plot synopsis. <laughs> I mean, kind of. Like I said, is this it? is as close as I could find. <laughs> is it? Yeah, it's um, like not sure. really what happens, but it describes it's a highlight the movie. reel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I guess it touches on the themes of the film. A lot like, of these older movies, it's hard to find like a proper synopsis of unless it's from like Wikipedia or IMDb right. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, like you, if you were to describe a trailer of something, that would probably be pretty <laughs> close to it. It's not the actual movie, but it's got the gist of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. with a lot more like title cards. Like coming towards the screen, certainly. Yep. But well, Nate, can you sort of like talk us through the background of this film? Like, where did it come from? How did it come to be? Like, so I'll do my best. There's so much written about this movie, and so I was trying to kind of like find the most concise versions of it of the story. But of course, um, basically, I think the big thing to know is that Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodzak, I think is how you say his name, they kind of were the main two male characters in this movie in the okay. sense that they were kind of adventurers. Cooper was a pilot, I believe, both during the war and after the war. And they kind of met soon after the war and, and were like journalists, basically, for the New York Times, okay. uh, for Asia Magazine, for National Geographic. Uh, and they basically turned a lot of their adventures together into these sort of semi-documentary movies that were like varying levels of real footage combined with story. Um, oh, so they did Grass in 1925, Chang, a drama of the wilderness, and The Four Feathers before this. And they all kind of like are using real footage from around the world and then in including these sort of stories behind them. So kind of interesting characters. But Cooper was particularly inspired when it comes to King Kong by the discovery of the Komodo dragon, which mm. like was such a huge thing for me when I was a kid. I feel like yeah. maybe a Komodo dragon was like visiting the Toronto zoo or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think yeah, something we, it was when like, we were kids. Yeah. Like I think it was like the fifth grade or something. Tor the Toronto yes. zoo got a Komodo dragon and it was something like a big like deal. Yeah. 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 Totally yeah. remember and that. So I remember like learning about Komodo dragons being like, 
giant lizards? Cool. And so, uh, but apparently, like, early 20th century, that was, like, when it was, well, discovered by white people, by Europeans. And so, basically, Cooper hears this story from his friend, a guy named W. Douglas Burden, who worked for the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in D.C., and this guy was the one who took the first American specimens from the island in 1926. Uh, wow. And he, like, even wrote a book about it. The book is called Dragon Lizards of Komodo. And I just thought I, I had to share a couple of the, like, chapter titles from that book because it so captures the vibe of King Kong. Um, so one chapter is called Dreamy Vapors of the Tropics. Um, another one is called a volcano, nudity, and tigers. <laughs> <laughs> Forgotten Island, very on the nose. And then one of the later chapters is to be the king of Komodo, which I mm. feel like is very, you know, there's got to be some kind of connection there to King Komodo. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cooper was like super inspired by the book and by the stories that Douglas Burden tells. Uh, and then he has this dream one day of a giant ape attacking a city. And so it kind of all comes together in his head and he's like, okay, we have to go do this. So he gets a novelist named Edgar Wallace to draft a scenario, but then uh, Wallace dies. And so he has to find someone else. He gets James Ashmore Creelman to complete a script and it's okay, but it's kind of just a first draft. And the person who actually takes it over the finish line as a script is Ruth Rose, who is the wife of Shodzak. And she rewrote the screenplay during production, especially. And one of the key things that Ruth Rose adds to the script is really just like fleshing out that female lead of Anne Darrow and making her into, I, you know, again, for the era, kind of, a, I feel like a pretty well-rounded character who has some personality, at least. How do you know? Women can write women better than men. <laughs> what, what a novel concept. Who would have thought? So that's sort of how the script comes to be. In terms of the directing side of things, Cooper kind of ends up taking the lead on all of the animated sequences, the stop motion sequences, and Shodzak leads the live action sequences where there's actually actors on screen. Oh, okay. So there's yeah. there's kind of a division of labor there, which is kind of interesting. And Cooper also enlists this guy, Willis H. O'Brien, who was kind of an early stop motion animation guy to help with Kong, with... The dinosaurs with all of those awesome stop motion sequences. And before this, he had worked on a variety of different things, but probably most well known at the time would have been The Lost World from 1925, which had a lot of dinosaurs in it. So this isn't Ray Harryhausen who did the stop motion? Nope. No. Oh, I just, I for whatever reason, I assumed it was. He's interesting. Old. Ah. He was old, but not that old. I guess not. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Don't glad you brought up Lost World already because that's like one of my favorite things to talk about in conjunction with this version of Kong because like there's so many more dinosaurs than people might think. Like I would love <laughs> to hear both of your takes on this because like again in that description does it say dinosaurs? Sure doesn't. It does not. Like, no. Yeah, True. and it's just there is a good chunk of this film spent fighting dinosaurs. Yeah, arguably <laughs> too much, but. Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't want to like tip my hand quite yet. But yes, there were more dinosaurs than I was expecting. So, yeah, <laughs> we, were, sure. we were expecting zero and there were <laughs> many of them. Like, yeah, there were more yeah, dinosaurs than anything else. <laughs> yeah, for some reason. Yeah, for yeah. Skull Island. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. OK, so I guess the question that I want to pose to you, Dee, Dee being the horror expert at the table mm-hmm. 
is this a horror movie? Because okay. I don't know that I would necessarily classify it as that, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I can bring this up. So I, compared to several people that I love to argue with, tend to have a more broad definition of what horror is. Like some people think it's really just mm. only slasher. They would never admit mm. that. But when you try to suss it out of them, they kind of see right. that. There are different approaches to it like academically like do you want to have intention do you want to have effect is this scary to me is it not scary is it supposed to be scary for me there is a very well-known film theorist named robin wood and this is what i always go to when it comes down to it. it's like this beautifully gracefully simple explanation of how to categorize horror films and basically he says that they need to have three elements they need to have normalcy usually humanity they need to have the monster Mm. and then most crucially the relationship between the two so just based on that categorization in my version of how i like to think about horror films and how i approach them most monster movies fall within that Right, right. That's a valid read to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was amazed at how much DNA is in this movie for all sorts of genres and all sorts Mm -hmm. of different Mm -hmm. types of movies. Certainly horror is one part of it. But then, you know, the blockbuster and the disaster movie and like all of these other sort of genres that I feel like kind of cascade out of this movie in some ways. I mean, I haven't seen it, but would either of you classify the Peter Jackson remake as a horror movie? Because I, I, to Ooh, me, based on what I, you know, I saw the trailer and I've seen bits and pieces of it. Like I, I went over to a friend's house and they were watching it. It feels more what we would classify sort of in the like adventure movie category, like an Indiana Jones or a Tintin or something like that. than it does a strictly speaking, a horror movie though, obviously like Peter Jackson's roots very much are in horror cinema so it it doesn't surprise me that it would maybe sort of be a little bit of column a a little bit of column b you're right like it is like a bit more of a like let's fight these giant bugs not that we don't have a lot of dinosaurs as we were just discussing in this one (laughs) but like the adventure of it doesn't seem necessarily to be like a compelling part of it also jackson's Mm. version of it has like way more character development like it really hinges on like why is every person there what is happening to them while they're there how is their story arc going and i think because of that that kind of almost nudges it out to out of the point where it's not really about kong i mean it's never really about kong but it is much more about like how to make it as a young actress in new york yeah Mm -hmm. it i actually feel like in some ways it leans more into the disaster movie sort of mm. genre in some ways. Right. That's because okay. it's really about the sort of hubris of the main character, the director bringing this sort of natural thing into the city. And I think you've highlighted this line later, Adam, but the, you know, don't worry, these chains are made of chrome steel. It's like, that's <laughs> yep. such a disaster movie line, right? Of like, don't worry, we have it under control. Te- yeah, the technology yeah, totally. is perfect. It's infallible. But then, yeah, the middle of it is totally that adventure movie. It's playing with a lot of different genres in some ways. Totally. Well, do we want to dive into the plot of the movie here and so, some some of the issues that come out of that? Oh, yes. Yeah, totally. Oh, yes. Cool. Well, so <laughs> this movie opens with uh, an old Arabian proverb, which is total BS, <laughs> as far as I can tell. But I thought it was pretty hilarious. So it reads... And the prophet said, and lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and it stayed its hand from killing, and from that day it was as one dead. Which is uh, interesting. I mean, I feel like 
you know, the plot of this movie is very simple and this supposed Arabian proverb sort of makes it feel like it has more depth and kind of ties into, you know, the, the closing line of the movie and all of that, of course. But it almost feels like a cheat when it's not a real quote of any kind. <laughs> um, but what did you think of the, that opening? So dramatic, isn't it? Like, <laughs> it's just very full of itself right from the get-go, which I kind of love. Yeah. Yeah, it, de- it definitely is setting the stage for the type of film we're about to have. And I feel like it was also kind of like... I don't want to say it was a full-on trope, but, like, these these movies of the era kind of always tried to set up what you were about to say. I mean, like, Frankenstein, for example, mm-hmm. full-on has that right. famous intro that The Simpsons parodied <laughs> in the first Treehouse of Horror, where, like, the guy comes out and is like, you're about to be scared! Like, <laughs> so it's, you know, it, it kind of feels like it's doing that, but also maybe trying to elevate it to make it seem a little bit more highfalutin than than it maybe necessarily is but it also like plays a little bit into like the projected and totally fake exoticism here it's like Mm -hmm. oh like oh it's an you know an arab proverb isn't this fancy oh we're gonna go to these other far lands maybe you haven't heard of them so i think it's kind of priming the pump for that sort of like othering and not like quite orientalism but you know what i mean just the whole like Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, totally. It also really reminded me of at the beginning of Kill Bill Volume One, <laughs> right? The Tarantino movie. He starts that movie with an old Klingon proverb: "Revenge is a dish best served cold," uh, it, which is obviously it's a reference to the Wrath of Khan. But I feel like he must be referencing this too, right? Just knowing him and knowing his him, film yeah, geekiness, yeah. right? Must mm-hmm. also be a reference to the beginning of this movie as well. So totally. I thought that was kind of, I, I had never picked up on that before. We should talk about sort of the cast of characters because being a movie from the 1930s, they really expedite the introduction of our characters, yes. who they are, where they came from, why they're here, to the detriment of the plot, maybe <laughs> a little bit. But um, yeah, so let's dig into our heroes and villains outside of Kong himself. Obviously, we have the original Scream Queen, maybe. We've got the character Anne Darrow, as played by Faye Ray, which, Nate, I noticed in our notes, you mentioned that she was apparently born in Canada. So Canada's own Faye Ray. She was born in Alberta, but then quickly with her family moved to the United States. You know, Mm. so she's sort of American-Canadian. But yeah, I mean, I think she's good in this. She's pretty compelling. And I don't know. Not what I was expecting, I guess, from this character. I mm-hmm. thought she was going to be kind of bland, and I thought she had a lot of personality. But what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I was expecting the sort of typical 1930s damsel in distress, and, you know, she certainly has more to do than maybe you would expect. I mean, I, I, that being said, like, it's still very much a 1930s female role, I think. I mean, Dee, you would maybe know better than any of us being someone who's watched this more and is, mm-hmm. like, more familiar with the sort of genre and landscape at the time. Was that the case? Is this sort of a maybe not revolutionary, but like atypical role for an actor? I don't know. I think that they're, for the higher quality films that like have survived up until this time, like, you know, Frankenstein, we got some spicy ladies in there, some good broads. Yeah. And I think that Bay Ray, the character of Anne very specifically is written as like a strong independent person. And that comes through, you know, she's got a career that she's interested in pursuing that sort of thing. So I really do appreciate that about her. 
I mean, she needs saving, but does she really? Because, like, Kong took her <laughs> and Kong was taking care of her already. Like, yeah. I, I do think that that's not as straightforward as you might think, but I have never watched her and just been like, oh, this is a shell of a person. How dare they? Um, which I have certainly had experiences with in watching certain other films of the era. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, apparently Faye Ray, upon watching the film, was like, oh, God, they used all of my scream takes. Because <laughs> she, she does so do much. a lot of screaming in this movie. And I don't think that that was necessarily her intent on set. But, yeah, I mean, other than that, like when she's just talking and stuff, she's charming. She is. Yeah. And I do like I, we can get to this in a hot second. But like in terms of all of her scream takes, like. Her, you know, screen testing without an actual screen while she's on board, mimicking later what she's actually experienced with Kong. Like, every time I see that, yeah. I'm like, you are so smart. Like, you know yeah, exactly that. what you're doing. It makes me so mm-hmm. happy every time. And I think that her, she needs to have the skills to be able to pull that off in such a way that's not, like, super obvious. But, like, we get the gist of it. I always appreciate it. So, like, her performance itself really sells a lot of what's happening here. Yeah, it's funny. I guess I never really thought about that. But like, this is something that people, actors discuss even to this day of like the difficulty of working on, you know, certain genre films that are mostly CGI mm-hmm. goop and, you know, on green screens <laughs> and they don't have anything to react to. But like, I, ne- I never really thought about that, that she would have been literally reacting to nothing mm-hmm. and to show genuine terror and to show like all of that emotion and literally having no sense of what is the finished product going to be. At least nowadays, you know, there's enough knowledge of how cinema works and everything that you can, like, kind of make an assumption of, like, if you're in, you know, King Kong, the remake, it's like, okay, Andy Serkis is going to do a motion capture performance and it's going to be a big scary ape. Like, (laughs) I kind of know what I'm going to get into. But, you know, at the time, it's like okay apparently they're gonna make something out of clay and it's gonna be impressive and (laughs) you know so yeah i i never really did think about that but she is really pulling off something pretty remarkable there Mm -hmm. totally i thought so so our other characters include carl denham who is played by robert armstrong and nate you said this is the character that is sort of based on cooper yeah that's right yeah so he's based on cooper who again was kind of you know, he was the pilot. He was the one who, I guess, was a little bit more of the, I don't know, conniving film director type. <laughs> uh, whereas uh, Shodzak, I mean, you should see photos of Shodzak. He was a hottie. Um, <laughs> and so that's why he ends up being our third character, Jack Driscoll, who's kind of the love interest. Carl Denham, I think he looks like he was maybe a little bit older at the time, which right. sort of tracks with this character as well. And of course, there's my favorite character, the Skipper. Uh, you know, I noticed this is this is not in the notes, but uh, he was I just immediately I took to him. He reminded me. I don't know. I don't know why, but he reminded me of the old clerk guy in the uh, Homer versus the 18th Amendment. episode. Where it's like, <laughs> okay. Wait, looky here. Seems there's been a prohibition law on the books in Springfield for 200 years. Well, well get out of here, old me. clerk guy. And he also kind of looks like Harry Shearer. Like, maybe it's the mustache or whatever. But I, yeah, I just, there was something very charming about him that I immediately took to. I was like, oh, I like this guy. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I do do love the idea of, like, the, the film director. Like, he looks like the sort of classic... 1930s film director, you know, he's carrying the camera around and everything. But I, I, this brings me to sort of like maybe my first 
gripe with the film, which is the way that Driscoll and Darrow like fall in love. Oh, immediately like oh, yeah. maybe 10 minutes into the movie like after <laughs> absolutely no real interaction all of a sudden he's confessing his love for her absolutely and i know that that's like a common thing of the era but like it was noticeable i, was, I like literally made a note of like oh then i guess those two okay cool they're in love now okay oh. i'm sure this won't become critical to the plot at all yeah <laughs> they're getting married what like a week later like as yeah, you did exactly yeah, it's movie tropish, but yeah, there's a lot of shorthand in this. But I will say one of the things I like from the beginning of this movie is I think Carl Denham's character is, is really interesting, right? Mm. Because he's kind of underhanded, sleazy, a bit of a trickster, you know, doing things <laughs> at any cost. I kind of like that character and I feel like it's become a trope and it's honestly one of my favorite sort of tropes in especially in sci-fi movies and that kind of thing. It reminded mm -hmm. me a bit of Prometheus. <laughs> um, you know, often it's like the eccentric billionaire leading the expedition, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. No totally. one knows exactly mm -hmm. what's going on. Well, it's interesting, too, because, like, this is so, I mean, it's the eccentric millionaire, but it's also the, like, kind of slimy, like, film exec. And, like, the film industry is, mm -hmm. like, it's a baby, like, at this yep. point. Like, it's yeah. just the fact that that emerges so early. It's like, oh, people knew exactly what was up with this industry, and they were into money and spectacle. And that's fine, but it's interesting to see it appear so early. Totally. Well, not to jump ahead, but the film moves very, very quickly. Speaking of which, because, yeah. Yeah, we get to the island pretty, pretty... Ex it's very expedited in the, the the sort of shorthands in this film. So that they get to the island. Uh, we're not really sure what they're going to be there for. They never really say, but uh, we're introduced to sort of a, and, and Didi, you sort of touched on this, a tribal ceremony sort of right out of the gate, which definitely feels a little bit like you're like, oh, this is clearly a movie from the 1930s. But yeah. Um, yeah. Who would have uh, thought yeah. a movie from the 1930s wouldn't be sen culturally sensitive? Yeah, right. I know. Yeah, it exactly. really is shocking. <laughs> but it really I, is. I had to bring up, like, so do you know anything about the guy who plays the native chief? No. No. Oh. I, I, I just kind of randomly came across this in my research for this. It was kind of one of those Wikipedia rabbit holes. But uh, <laughs> so he's played by a guy named Noble Johnson. And... He's actually this really interesting guy. He basically played these kinds of roles in Hollywood that mm. were often pretty racist so that he could fund his own production company. So he oh, had a production wow. company called Lincoln Motion Picture Company, and it's one of the first producers of so-called race films for a black audience. Oh. Wow. Yeah. It's like the Tyler, Tyler Perry of his time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> And so, like, one of those movies uh, that they produced was actually called By Right of Birth, and it was a direct response to The Birth of a Nation. <laughs> so he's actually, like, a pretty, like, historically important guy. So in the midst of this, like, super racist depiction of the, this island culture, there's actually, like, this really important early black filmmaker who's in the middle of it. So I thought that was really wow. cool and kind of just gave me a different appreciation for the sort of complexities of what's going on in film at the time. That's fascinating. That's really cool. Yeah, and we come across them and they're doing this giant ceremony. And one of the things I think that this film does incredibly well, and this is the first time we really see it, is just scale. Like you just see yep. how yes. giant this door is. And even though there's no yeah. Barney saying like, look how big that platform is. Like, it's just <laughs> like the way that you get the enormity of this is incredible. And also the fact that like, we're barely treating these people as people, but they're 
right. The ceremony might, may or may not do anything, but their idea of not going into the jungle and dealing with Kong yeah. is the right thing to do. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, this is sort of the, the immediate thing that I wrote down is like... <sighs> And I'm going to keep banging this drum, the sort of the dated nature of the film. But I was genuinely blown away by the production design and the effects that were on display in this film. Yes, the cinematography may feel a little bit dated, but to your point, like the scale of it all is really, really impressive, not only by like 1930s standards, but even by today's standards, because again, like today it would all just be like cgi goop and it wouldn't necessarily be all that impressive but like they're clearly building these massive sets these massive physical things and yes they're going to integrate stop motion and rear projection and all this stuff but like you can tell that there's a lot of physical props and physical sets that these people are interacting with and i think that really elevates this film to a level that makes it not necessarily feel like a movie from 90 years ago yeah i mean 100 percent. i think the thing that it reminds me of the most and this is why i loved this movie was just that it makes me think of like industrial light and magic right it makes me think mm -hmm. of all of those various filmmakers and and production houses and all that stuff throughout the years that have tried to push the medium forward in one way or another and so, yeah. like, you know, even, like, those ILM guys, I think you saw the documentary, perhaps, like, recently. Yeah. Um, yep. The beginnings of that documentary is talking about how these guys were, like, inspired by Harryhausen and, and other folks. And when they were kids and when they were, like, film students, they were doing this stop-motion animation that looks a lot like this. And they were trying to, like, learn all of these techniques. And by that point, a lot of that was, like, not in fashion anymore. And they end up kind of reviving it, right? And so you yeah. have those kinds of folks. You also have Peter Jackson, right, with Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, yep. especially. I actually think in some ways by the time he's doing King Kong, unfortunately, it's starting to get almost into that Hobbit territory of, like, the yeah. answer is yeah, always yeah, yeah. CGI goop, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, ironically, maybe the strongest part of that movie, to your earlier point, Didi, is the way that he develops the characters. And the characters are much more fully fleshed out in that movie in a way that's really lovely. But I actually think some of the effects don't hold up as well as I was expecting them to. But yeah, he pushes forward the medium. I think about James Cameron, you know, all those folks who are kind of trying to pull out every trick in the book that they have in order to make something feel more believable or bigger than it has ever felt before. I well, I that. mean, one of the challenges, and we've t Nate, we've talked about this throughout this show, is going back and watching these older films is trying to contextualize them and watch them outside of the context of watching them in 2023 or whenever you're watching them. Especially these movies that have been parodied to death because you know the parody so much that seeing the original thing, it, it almost feels like, well, what is this? It's been done better down the line because it has been referenced or parodied so much. While I was watching this, I was really trying to put myself in the headspace of an audience member in 1933 of like, what would it be like to be seeing this for the first time? Because like the reality is with all due respect, 
the effects are very dated. They do not hold up, I don't think. I mean, you can tell that it's stop-motion animation. It, it, and there are elements of it, like I said, the production design, the costume design, the way it's all integrated, that is still quite impressive by today's standards. But you know that it's an effect. You know that what you're seeing is not real. But thinking back to what it must be like in 1933, having, like, sync sound with your film is not even 10 years old, and now you're literally seeing a monster come to life on screen and interacting with a human character that is played by an actual human being like that must have been absolutely mind-blowing you know like there's that classic story of when oh, the yeah. train station in paris story of like when people saw it for the first time they literally ducked out of the way because they thought the train was going to crash into the building like i imagine this is one of those you know similar situations and again like i think of like wizard of oz and the transition to color mm -hmm. and how that must have been so mind-blowing to people like it is hard to put yourself in that headspace but there is definitely moments in this film that make you sort of go wow like that's mm -hmm. really cool and even though i'm pretty sure i know how they did it because i've watched enough like making of documentaries over the 35 years of my life <laughs> i almost wish that i had seen this movie as a kid before i kind of knew how movies were made because i think then i would have been more in that headspace of like how did they do that whereas yeah. now like i'm very much aware of how they did it and it kind of takes away the magic of it um but yeah it's there the 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 artistry on display is very very impressive so i i had the same question which was what did people think back in 1933 when this came out? And so I started like kind of looking around at reviews and things like that. And the thing that really surprised me was that people were not like, man, that was so believable uh, at all. Oh, really? Not at all. A lot of the descriptions of the audience's reaction for the first screening of it were that people laughed. Oh. That's almost like a horror movie reaction sometimes, right? People are maybe a little bit in awe, a little bit terrified, laughing maybe because they're uncomfortable, but also laughing because they don't know what to make of it. It's kind of a mixture of emotions, right? And the interpretation mm. of that moment from the reviewers, it varies really widely from people being like, ah, people thought it was bullshit, to other people being like, man, people were so scared they were like laughing to themselves, you know, sort of like sho shocked at how taken aback they were, right? But I think the sort of consensus was at least that I saw, was that um, people didn't think it was believable, but they didn't know how they did it, right? Mm. So it's it's like it's a magic show where, right. you know, like you know deep down that the magic is not actually magic, but you don't know how they did it. And that's what's exciting about watching it and why you're like, wow, that was so cool, right? Because especially back then, like you were saying, stop motion and miniature rear projection and all of these kinds of techniques are not... Yeah. necessarily common knowledge by any stretch of the imagination and so that's kind of the entertainment value is like really just not understanding how they're doing it i'm glad we've already brought up the lost world because that was six years before this came out something like that so it's in a fairly <laughs> recent memory because it's not like they're getting like a new movie a week at this point in terms of like cinematic experiences the technology from Lost World to this, honestly, the dinosaur bits, at least, I don't feel are that much more developed than that. But there are other things in addition to that. So I'm wondering if mm. they were either expecting more, comfortable with the level that they were already getting. And also, especially the ending, like, it villainizes an audience that appreciates the spectacle. 
And like, yeah. we're kind of used to grappling with those issues of like making you question if your fandom's okay or making you, you know, cheer on the slasher. Do you feel okay <laughs> with that? But back <laughs> then, like, this is not something that they were being asked to do as an audience. Right. I kind of want to talk a little bit about the sound of the film because this was something. Again, I thought the film was kind of dated. Guys, <laughs> it's not clear. Wait, what? Um, yeah, but uh, this is one of these weird things. My grandfather, who we've alluded to, the, the <laughs> stonecutter, he worked in radio. And so he kind of gave me an appreciation for sound design and sound elements at a very, very early age. And, you know, when I was making my earliest student films with Nate and everything, the general mantra was people can forgive terrible, terrible, terrible cinematography, terrible quality video, but terrible sound is unforgivable. Mm -hmm. For whatever mm -hmm. reason, the human brain is very, very attuned to how things sound. And to me, I almost feel like that was the element that felt the most dated for this film was just how everything sounded. I mean, obviously there's the, the, the fact that it's recorded with like older technology and all the screams kind of sound kind of shrill and like borderline distorted and all that stuff. But the thing that really, really struck me was like the lack of ambience. Mm. And it's funny because watching the Simpsons parody, I then became even more aware of the lack of ambience because the Simpsons parody is riddled with ambience. So when they're in the jungle, you hear the jungle sound. When they're on the boat, you hear the ocean and you hear the wind and you hear the waves crashing. I've long said, and I've talked about it on this show, the Simpsons sound designers do not get nearly enough credit. I think that is one of the best sound designed animated shows out there. It is, mm -hmm. they do incredible work and, and this is a testament to it. There's a scene early on where the boat is sort of like on the water and it's clearly a dramatic moment and it's dead silent. There's no score punctuating this moment. You do not hear the engine of the boat. You do not hear the waves. You don't hear anything. It just feels completely lifeless. And then it comes through some fog and it starts to approach the island. That's when we get sort of like the first like orchestral music cue like that we would think of as like a traditional movie score. It's a little bit jarring. And then there's more music from that point onward. But there was just this like weird fact that there's like not really any sound design outside of like the very sort of diegetic foley that you know like oh well this person is like carrying a gun and therefore the gun is making sounds or is firing the gun and therefore it's making sound but there's none of that sort of like design that i think we've become very very accustomed to and that to me like felt made the film feel like a like a 90 year old movie in a weird way like am i the only one that felt that way or am i just like way too attuned to this or i don't know curse you in your modern ears <laughs> <laughs> i have to say i didn't notice the lack of ambience but like now that you say it i yes that does make sense and that is a really interesting observation that that's maybe one of the key dividing lines between, you know, this movie and a more modern sort of sense of soundscape. But yeah, I didn't notice that as much. I mean, I think what I noticed about the sort of sound was just that, you know, they kind of front load a lot of the dialogue. And then that mm. chunk in the middle, sort of once they go through the door, is basically just like roaring and screaming. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and score yep. for like a really long time. I was reading that one of the things that the director asked Rose, the screenwriter, to do was to basically like get all of the exposition out of the way so that once they're there, <laughs> they don't have to explain anything. Which is actually right. like something that you still hear about with with movies today. It's like Avatar oh. or you know any number of other movies where it's like they just front load a bunch of exposition so that when it comes time for the action sequences, you know, you've set up the dominoes and you let them go, basically. So yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting, but it's reflected really in the sound design. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love Pacific Rim so much, because they're like, hey, guys, there's Kaiju. We fight him with robots. Let's go. Like, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's interesting because also like in my head like being such a nerd for like the history of not just like film but film technology like it is very obvious they're not recording sound whatsoever and it would not have been expected that they'd right. be able to bring even sound recording information but that being said like how yep. much of Fay Ray's p- performance relies on the screaming like we just said like you can see her scream but yeah. hearing it is an entirely different effect so I don't know if that was like them really playing up the sound because like you were saying like this is kind of still new like this isn't with within recent memory for you know film technology to even have sound period i I was reading that at this point in time yes the jazz singer had come out 1927 but like movies were still released often in two versions as sound and silent because Mm -hmm. a lot of theaters couldn't show talkies basically and so you know when you think of it that way it's like movies have to be constructed differently because they have to be able to have the cards come up and give a little bit of exposition and then work basically silently otherwise and this movie kind of makes sense that way where it's like yeah there are huge portions of this movie that you don't really need any additional information other than what's happening visually you have a couple inner titles here and there and this movie would still totally work like you Mm -hmm. It arguably might work better. I don't, I don't know. Like, I will say, like, it doesn't necessarily suffer as badly as a movie like Citizen Kane. Nate and I always joke about our favorite line in Citizen Kane is, <laughs> is when someone, for whatever reason, shouts, let's all go to the window. And then the, the characters go to the window to look up. And it's like, you can tell Orson Welles is used to writing radio plays yeah, and right. doesn't understand that, like, no, 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 you show, don't tell. Um, so this film doesn't really suffer from that as much, but like the, don't worry, these chains are made of chrome steel. It's like this classic thing of like, no, we got to tell the audience that everything's strong. Don't worry, nothing could possibly go wrong. Everything's about to go very, very, very wrong. But it's not quite as bad as I, I've seen in other films of the era because they're still trying to figure out, like you said, Nate, like, the, the idea of writing a film that has dialogue and isn't relying on intertitles, like this is all still very, very fresh and new and they're still figuring it out. Like just shy of 10 years mm-hmm. is not a very, very long time. Like, yeah, you know? I mean, like yeah. case in point, this is one of the sound innovations of this movie is just like a score that is tightly synced to the visuals. So mm-hmm. that scene where, you know, the native chief is walking towards the group of adventurers, I guess, you know, you hear the score actually follow his footsteps. And like at that Mm. time, that was still a really new idea that you could reliably sync up the score with the action on screen that specifically. So yeah, this is like all super, super new. Yeah. And you can even tell some of the performances are almost like Fay Ray's performance like her screaming's amazing but her physicality like when Kong is like carrying her around and putting her down like that could that could be silent era acting right there totally 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 I want to talk about the sort of 
overly long chunk in the middle of the movie where we just see a bunch of animated figures <laughs> fight each other. Dinosaurs. Yeah, di- the dinosaurs of it all. <laughs> what were your guys' feelings of that? Because I had some real thoughts. Uh, like, did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Did you find it all borderline interminable? Like, I, I, you know, I... <laughs> not tipping your hand at all here. No, not at all. Not at all. Someone save me here. <laughs> um, I always watch this and I'm like, wow, they sure can't let go of Lost World. Like, mm, it's yeah. just, I feel like they're kind of like, you know, it worked before and probably it will again. So I, I don't love it. It's not my favorite part. But I will say, however many times I've watched this, which has to be over a dozen at this point, I always forget it. And that might be a good mm. thing because then I don't dread it the next time. Right. Yeah, it's just kind of there. And I'm like, well, this isn't for me. Let's get back to Kong. This is the part that really, again, reminds me of contemporary blockbusters, right? Of yeah. Jurassic Park and Avatar, right? They have similar chunks. They're just not as long where really what's happening is the main characters are going to the place and seeing the things, you know? <laughs> and that's pretty much it. It's like there isn't a lot else going on. It's the flying sequence in Avatar where they're getting onto the dragons and flying around, the banshees or whatever. It's when they first see the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park and they're just watching them move across the landscape and they find the sick one and all of that sort of stuff. It's not moving the story forward. It's just experiencing the world and the special effects, right? This is like a a, a proto version of that. For me, it does go on too long. But also there are parts that work better than others. Like I much prefer the parts where it's like there's that scene where, for example, they're like looking through the jungle. And this is a great example of where they're really pulling out all of the different tricks they have to make this happen, where it's like they have the actors in front. They have uh, set around them. They have a screen behind that. The screen is yeah, showing yeah, yeah. stop motion animation, right? Like, yeah, and then, and then at stuff. one point they even do some kind of, um, st- what do they call it? A stop trick where the character goes behind the set and then they're in the screen, right? Like <laughs> yeah. all yeah, yeah, of those, yeah. like that stuff for me is great. And I think it's really working partly because there are humans who are doing something, even though they're kind of just watching, they are actually, yes. you know, interacting and they're worried and you're worried because they're worried the stuff where it's just Kong fighting dinosaurs doesn't really excite me as much. Yeah. So this was my biggest sort of bugaboo (laughs) throughout the thing. But it's interesting because it really, really got me thinking about this sort of ongoing conversation that happens online these days about, like, the CGI goopiness of most modern blockbusters now. And Mm -hmm. I think what this film sort of put into perspective for me in a way that I hadn't really been able to articulate till I saw this was where the problem lies. And it's interesting that you bring up Jurassic Park because I think what makes Jurassic Park work is that 90% of the stuff with all of the impressive CGI dinosaurs and everything is always driving the plot forward. So it's always involving our characters. It's like going to take us to the next sequence. There's no sequences in Jurassic, the original Jurassic Park anyway, that I can remember, where it's just like CGI dinosaur versus CGI dinosaur for 15 minutes. It's always like the raptors are trying to break into the kitchen and find the kids, or the T-Rex is eating Newman off of the toilet (laughs) or what have you. Like there's always, 
And that raises the stakes in a way. Right. Because you're worried for our human characters that we've connected with because we don't have a connection with the monster. And I think that's where this loses me is that when you get into the sort of 10 to 15, I don't even remember how long it was, but it, it really did feel like way too long where like, it's just King Kong fighting other, you know, stop motion animated creatures, be it dinosaurs or what have you. I'm just sort of like my characters that I'm kind of engaged with and connected to aren't in any real danger. It seems like, or I don't seem to care. So once your special effect becomes dated, these sequences feel so much more painful because <laughs> you're just watching an old, lousier effect for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And I think it sort of emphasizes the importance of if you're going to have an effect sequence, it really should drive the plot forward so that if the effect starts to feel a little bit dated, at least there's sort of this emotional or... Um, story reason for it to be there. And I think it's why I don't tend to like movies like Avatar where it's just like, okay, yeah, like this is visually impressive, but you're just having scene after scene of visual impressiveness that in 10, 20, 30, 90 years is just not going to look as good as it did when it was first released and it's just going to feel like filler material. And Jurassic Park is such an interesting comparison because I did not see Jurassic Park as a kid. I did not see it until the 3D re-release, which would have been like 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. So I saw it for the first time as like a 25-year-old or whatever. <laughs> and I loved it. I was like, this yeah. movie rules. I understand why everybody was obsessed <laughs> with it. This movie is so good. Yes, maybe some of the effects looked a little bit dated. And, you know, the CGI doesn't look as good as the CGI would today. But that film is so much more effective, so much stronger than Jurassic World, which came out, you know, a oh, year wow. or two after that 3D yeah. re-release. But it's it was this, like, aha moment for me of, like, <laughs> this is the problem with all of these movies, and this is what everybody is saying, is that it's just an effect for effect's sake. And I think when this film works the best is when it's not doing that and when it's doing the stuff where it's interacting with Fay Ray or when he's climbing the Empire State Building because it feels like there's actual stakes there and they're not just showing off what was impressive for 1933 but maybe isn't impressive for 2023 technology on display. Sorry, I just ranted no, for no, like 15 No, that was great. <laughs> that was great. I was, of course, thinking of myself when you were talking about that. But like, um, sorry, that was a joke. Um, but Nate, <laughs> Nate saying like world creation reminded me like one of the things I value most in film, especially genre film, is world creation. Like I don't mm -hmm. want to see like, oh, there's a dinosaur. I want to see like, and here's what our bridges look like because of that. And here's why we right. have this giant ass gate. Like, so that sort yeah. of thing, that might be why I was perfectly a little bit happier to kind of lose myself because I wasn't even losing myself. Like it's not, you know, all the dinosaur stuff is definitely not my favorite part. And it certainly isn't the strongest part in it, but I really don't mind it. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if it's because it not only sinks me into the world of Kong and this island and whatnot, but also knowing the limitations of the technology of the filmmaking itself, it sinks me into the 1930s audience and helps me like get into their shoes a little bit more because they're going to be like, wow, this is really cool. How did they do that? And for me, I'm like, well, I know exactly how they did that. That's not interesting, but I can maybe <laughs> feel some more empathy with you and go along for the ride a little bit more. And I will say that one of the things that like the Kong versus dinosaurs sequence in the Peter Jackson one somehow that genius of a man was able to make it so that serves as 
character development for Kong himself because you can see the actual like scars and, on set. Yeah. You can see the rough and tumble. Mm -hmm. This is what this dude has to do to just survive here. And that kind of would make you pissed off too. Yeah. Well, and in that, in that version, they have the advantage too of Andero being able to interact more in that scene. Yes. And she's sort of under Kong right. and you get to see her reaction. And, it, you know, again, having a person that looks like they're in a place <laughs> goes really a, a long way towards legitimizing the the other effects, I think. Mm -hmm. And again, to me, that's why, like, the scenes that work best are the ones that are just combining techniques in such a way that you do get yeah. a sense of how it all fits together a little bit more. Which, again, you know, like, that's one of the things that this movie does first is this idea of miniature rear projection, which, mm -hmm. like... Any of those shots where you see the stop motion characters moving, but then you see a tiny little person, it's like they're actually projecting yeah. footage of a real human being at a tiny, tiny scale into this stop motion scene, which is really, really cool. And again, probably for the time was trying to do what we're talking about is like giving it some stakes and scale yeah. rather than just having the stop motion stuff doing it on its own. You get to see Faye Ray hanging out at Kong's feet and that kind of thing. Well, and I will say too, like there are definitely moments where I was very much impressed of like, again, knowing how they would have had to do it being like, damn, like the t to, to synchronize an onset person firing a gun and then the rear projection dinosaur collapsing mm -hmm. or right. the sequence where the, uh, the native folk are firing arrows at Kong and it's like, okay, so you've got these rear screen projection or like, a, you know, matte combination and this, to time that so that that works with then cutting over to the stop motion arrows. Like, it's very, very like impressive. And again, like a 1933 audience is probably just be taking in the spectacle of it all and mm. not like thinking about it. But I do have an appreciation for the artistry and the, the technical acumen of like, how they had to do all of this stuff, that really did impress me. And I was like, okay, I'm starting to understand why this movie is so revered 90 years later. <laughs> and it's interesting too, because like my th this thing that's bothering me is kind of what was bothering you, Nate, when we were watching Mary Poppins. Like <laughs> I'm just like sitting there being like, oh my God, like they're interacting with, you know, Dick Van Dyke is dancing with penguins. This is incredible. And you're like, can we just wrap this up, please? Like, can we get to the next segment? Like, so it, it, the tables have turned in a way, but I guess it's right. just the charm of Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke is what was lacking from King well, Kong, you know, it's maybe, like but. It's the thing that, that, you know, we've often said to each other, which is like this idea of movies as dreams, right? And like when you start to notice the, you know, inconsistencies or just things that bug you, you kind of wake up and then it's really hard to get back to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And you just, once the dream is done, the dream is done. You were already sort of sensing things that kind of irked you. And so by the time you're getting to these sequences that are really like, all right, sink in and just in enjoy the ride, you're like, oh, for God's sake, how much longer <laughs> is this? And, and you know, that at moments I was sort of feeling that way about Mary Poppins as well. But yeah, it just depends <laughs> on whether you are still in it or not. Totally. Well, should we talk about the return to New York? Oh. Yes, yes, because I do really, really like Act 3 of this film, I will say. I like Act 3 a lot more than the, the dinosaur sequence. Oh, interesting, interesting. I just love the chrome steel. Yeah, no, I, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm big on chrome steel, so. <laughs> yeah, I love the way that they make this transition happen, right? Where it just opens and you're immediately 
like in front of a Broadway theater with the sign. There's the crowd outside. Like it's got so much energy coming into this sequence, which I just thought was great. I also did the math because one of the guys said that he paid $20 for these tickets. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, but like watching it in 2023, you're like $20 for a Broadway show. Like that's a steal of a deal. But I did do the math and that's like the equivalent of something like $437 in today's monies. So like, okay, fair enough, dude. You're right to get upset about that. That's that's a lot of checks. I love that you did that because I did the exact same thing. And I also looked up how much $10,000 would be because that's how much they're bringing up in in, in a day. (laughs) So I was just like, I need to understand exactly what this means. Which the math for that is the $10,000, which they're bringing in a day, is the equivalent of Mm $236,173.85. So... Wow, that's not a bad return on your investment for. I mean, granted, you had to risk life and limb, <laughs> a few men's lives, and, yeah. yeah, a few gas bombs, but yeah, not bad. I do always watch yeah. like they. So many of their men died. I'm like, don't you need them to get home? Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Apparently not. Didi, you're overthinking. It. <laughs> the skipper made it. They're fine. They're fine. You only need two guys, really. The one thing that that's interesting about this scene is like. This is the scene that The Simpsons parody again and again and again is this scene at the Broadway theater. It's on TV during Bart gets an F like Homer's watching it on TV. It's like kind of a parody of this where, you know, Kong is, I think, wearing a top hat or maybe a pork pie hat and has a cane, (laughs) you know, um, you get it in Frankenstein thing. Yeah, the putting on the Ritz thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got it. (laughs) And you get it in Monty can't buy me love. You get a nice reversal where you have, you know, of course, Nessie gets captured and he's showing it to the press and then they start taking photos. But Nessie actually loves the photos. And instead it drives (laughs) Burns insane. Uh, That's a nice, a nice twist. There's a fantasy sequence in H.O.M.R., that episode where Homer gets smart again because he gets the crayon out of his nose. Homer has like a, right. a fantasy sequence where it's sort of a mashup between Kong and the gold diggers of 1933, that musical. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're yeah, like yeah. dancing to we're in the money. <laughs> but then they open the uh, curtains and Kong is back there screaming. So, yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, like, what is it about the scene that just gets the Simpsons writer's goat so bad. Like, why are they so obsessed with this scene? No, I mean, part of it for me is the spectacle of it all. Because, I mean, who doesn't love a giant spectacle? But also, this is all about, like, the hubris of man. I feel like, like, that's monorail all over again. Like, that's something that the Simpsons writers have been like, you think you're bigger and better than nature? I'm going to show you, jerk. Because it works. Because it's, you know, omnipresent. Well, yeah, I was going to say it's the spectacle, but I think it's also this whole idea of, like, (laughs) that hideous bitch goddess show business, (laughs) like, uh, as Bart would refer to it. Like, it's this idea of, like, we're going to put on a big show, but, like, at what cost, Mm -hmm. right? I think that it, yeah, it does resonate with anybody who is a creative who recognizes the blood, sweat, and tears of creating something and putting it out into the world. Like, they're aware of the sacrifices you have to get there and, like, in this case, it's like, yes, okay, they're putting a big ape on display, but knowing what the, 
day to day of putting out a TV show and like the sacrifices you have to make and the time and all that. Like it is a monster. Like you're literally giving up a piece of yourself to do this thing for like for what? And it can all come crashing down quickly if you're not careful. So literally here. I yes, quite literally. So I'm not surprised that this is the scene that they keep coming back to. And maybe that's also part of why I find the third act to be so compelling because of the fact that I kind of am also in show business in a weird roundabout way. So to your point, though, Didi, it's just like visually, it's very, very impressive. Like it's such an interesting visual of seeing it's again that scale, this idea of like this giant ape on stage on Broadway, which let me tell you, when I saw the giant ape on stage on Broadway, <laughs> very impressive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think? Nate? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's uh, funny putting a giant ape in a top hat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. I don't know. I mean, I do think there is just like the comedy factor of like, you know, we just did this whole series on Broadway and The Simpsons and like sort of movie musicals and stuff. And they love that stuff. And it's because it's just there's so much comedy in it, both intentional and unintentional of the sort of sincerity of things the sort of uh, showbiz aspect of it, of just like trying to put on a glitzy show uh, and then just, you know, putting a monkey in that context or an ape in that context, (laughs) I think is just funny, you know? But yeah, I love all of those theories as well. I love the connection to monorail, the sort of meta connection to them actually like doing this kind of work and all of the crap that goes into that. Yeah. Well, so the ape escapes, right? We get to, what was the name of that arcade game? Um, Rampage. uh, rampage we get the rampage sequence yeah <laughs> yeah pretty much which i kept yeah. thinking i kept thinking about while watching this uh, yeah there's they, even that there's a parody of that in the simpsons too i always forget how upset i get at the end of like both king kong and then at the end of frankenstein bride of frankenstein too because i just mm. i feel so bad for them like i usually mm. feel bad anytime an animal's upset because i tend to like animals more than people but like it's just it's so awful watching him go through that and like he didn't ask to be there he was just hanging out in his little place and getting worshipped or terrified by the you know native people (laughs) like he would not be in that position by any choice of his and he sees like the one person who was kind of kind to him up until this point in this journey and you know look what happens when he tries to hang out with her and even sitting there last night, I was like, God damn it, I need a palate cleanser after this. Like, I'm not afraid. It's true. But I, I feel so bad for him. Yeah, it's tragic in that exactly in that kind of Frankenstein sort of way. <laughs> the very end of this movie is probably my least favorite part, but I'll be curious, like, what you think of it, Dee Because uh, the, the line. Yeah, the <laughs> line. Exactly. The line. Well, first um, of all, the line is just. Wasn't airplanes. Off. It was beauty that killed the beast. No, it wasn't you. Music swell and picture end. That's the thing. I hate that so much. And I love how much I hate it because it's so effective in making me angry. And I kind of think that might be the point because that's actually not what happened. He Mm. just wants that to be the headline. Like you hear him even say earlier, oh, that's your your hook on it. That's what your hook on. There's your headline, boys. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't, in my mind because it's very my cynical view is very cynical of this like he doesn't even believe that he's just trying to steer the headline like he was trying to do earlier before and he hasn't changed anything about his approach to this entire Mm. thing even watching all of this death and destruction and losing so much of everyone throughout the entire 
part of this. It's like, oh, wait, no, I got my headline. I got my selling point. I'm just going to do some, you know, good PR and that's it. And nothing has changed in him at all. And that's really tragic to me. I love that reading so much. I wish a, just a little bit more of that was like really on the screen. Oh, yeah. Know? I might be just projecting my own reading. shit. Yeah. It's, it's an enigmatic ending because it's like, what the hell does that mean? It's such a trite way to sum up what just happened. And part of my sort of issue with it, I guess, is just that it en it ends so quickly and it it really is unclear what exactly Denim takes away from all of this, you know, <laughs> because there's no justice. He doesn't really get any comeuppance. But at the same time, you don't really get the sense that he got away with it either. It, it, it doesn't really give you that. So it's like, I wish that it kind of went a little bit one way or the other of like, either he learned his lesson or he didn't and he is the monster. Weirdly, I feel like even the Peter Jackson version doesn't totally give us that closure either. Even with all of the character development that he builds up throughout that whole movie, it still ends with that line and it's still totally unclear to me what the hell happens with Carl Denham at that point. <laughs> um, so it's a weird ending, but... I guess we skipped over the whole part where he, like, climbs the Empire State Building or something. <laughs> Impressive. And again, the Simpsons episode does an incredible oh job of replicating the sort of the choreography, the blocking, mm -hmm. the staging, the cinematography, all of that. Like, each, even the whole, like, when the hand comes out and grabs Marge <laughs> and, like, they keep doing that in the film where, like, this giant Kong hand suddenly <laughs> right. enters the frame. And which, again, like, yes, a part of me, like, chuckles at the artifice of it all but it is still also kind of scary like that would be horrible to like all of a sudden a giant monkey hand reaching through a hotel window to grab you and then be like oh no you're not the one i wanted you can go back <laughs> um but it is a very very impressive sequence how they integrate the stop motion with live action plates and with on set photography the train sequence where he like breaks the elevated train mm -hmm. and the most like nonchalant train riders i've ever like i've ridden the, the the subway in new york that is the chillest subway i think i've ever seen <laughs> i guess it's technically not a subway because it's elevated but like nobody's just like standing around doo, 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 like, and then all of a sudden oh no yeah <laughs> i thought it was you know kind of interesting to think about again like what would this mean in 1933 the empire state building had just opened basically mm -hmm. it mm. it had topped out in like 1931 so two years before this movie comes out and it's the wow. tallest building in the world at that point right right it's a kind of a huge deal it started construction before the depression started like just months before oh, wow. uh black tuesday um and the other interesting thing is that um it's like 75 percent empty at this point they like mm. couldn't sell any of the offices which actually is the exact same thing that happened with the World Trade Center, which incidentally became the tallest building in like 1970 when it opened. They just couldn't fill the space. And becomes the iconography of all New York film for basically mm -hmm. like the better part of 30 years. Right. Including, which, yeah, I including guess part... 70s Kong, right, is yeah, at, at yeah. the World Trade Center. But yeah, it's just like this really interesting building. And apparently the thing that was like kind of getting it through financially was the observation deck. And this movie was like part of kind of building up the myth of the Empire State Building and didn't help any sell any office space, but it did uh, encourage more people to come and visit the observation deck, which I thought was kind of interesting. 
Interesting. Well, that is interesting. But yeah, the other thing that I was thinking of was just that, like, that scene where the giant hand goes inside the, the building and grabs uh, the woman reminded me a lot of the Adam West Batman series of just, like, totally. those scenes of, like, climbing up the building and just, like, the interiors of those buildings yeah. just had that vibe because it feels so much like a set. It's got that kind of proscenium setup exactly like that show. So that kind of made me chuckle a little bit. That's funny. <laughs> well, it's also, it's interesting because, like, Anne was supposed to be safe. Like, she was brought into that right. building. She was put in a room. Like, who would have ever thought he could find her there? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. totally. Well, he's got the soul of a lover. And then, again, just, the, like, the impressive animation work of integrating her on the top of the building and, like, when he picks her up and then when he puts her back down and then, like, all yeah. the, the planes flying around. Like, the sequence is... To me, anyway, it's the opposite of the dinosaur sequence <laughs> in that, like, again, the, the mm-hmm. stakes feel higher. Mm-hmm. I'm emotionally invested in the action. And even though I know where this is ultimately going because I've seen the parodies mm-hmm. ad nauseum, I was still sort of like, how is this going to f- actually play out? Like, what's going to happen? And yeah. and I think that's sort of a testament to the filmmaking on display there. Yeah, yeah totally. A, I always think about what would have happened like I'm, I'm pragmatic like that like i'm like what did they do with his body like i'm sure they stuffed <laughs> yeah. i'm sure that they stuffed and mounted it or something but that's a lot of meat to get rid of yeah they mm-hmm. sold monkey stew to the army they might have <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i was one thing i was reading about that final sequence is that i think this is from a reputable source apparently some of the shots of the airplanes are actual airplanes buzzing the Empire State Building. Oh, my God. And then they combine that with all of the miniature work that they're doing as well and the stop motion and all those other techniques. Damn. But there is actually footage in there of airplanes going around the Empire State Building, which is, like, unfathomable, (laughs) you know, now. Like, it'll never happen again, pretty much. So, like, that's just But I do feel like that does feel like something that you could get away with in 1933 because, like... There's no yeah. There's no like rules about anything. Being, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like so, no one had wait. considered that before, probably. Hold the phone. Mm-hmm. They were like dinosaurs. We can fake that. Airplanes around an actual building that exists. Like no, no, no. We got to do the real thing. We can't fake it. <laughs> In fairness, it was seventy five percent empty, so it's not like it's that. <laughs> true, like, true. There's no danger to the right. residents, but well, and and you got to think like Cooper was a pilot, so like maybe yeah. he was like, yeah, no, this is easy. We could do this. I know I, I know a guy. <laughs> I don't know. Totally. So we're getting to my favorite segment, the parts that seem like Simpson jokes but aren't. Uh, Nate, Didi, were there anything in the film that felt particularly Simpson-y to you? I mean, other than the chrome steel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the things that I jumped out, I, mean, I sort of touched on one of them already, was the skipper really felt like the old clerk at the Springfield library and Homer versus the 18th amendment. But the other thing was just like the very obvious props, like the box that says gas bombs <laughs> on it, like to right. really telegraph to the audience. That's what this thing is, which like, I don't think that's what it would have said in yeah. reality, it's, but that's also very, very cartoony. It's also very Adam West Batman actually. <laughs> well, or like Bugs Bunny, like acne yeah, Bugs dynamite, Bunny. like the, you yeah. know, the classic cartoon of like, we have to telegraph very clearly what this is. And then totally. the other thing was <laughs> every time Kong put something in his mouth, <laughs> because it was clear they were then cutting to a giant like animatronic Kong Eat head. Face. 
and, yeah. and and like the people would just sort of be like ah, ah as its eyes just sort of like weirdly shifted side uh-huh. to side that just felt like super cartoony and then the simpsons they have that shot of like king homer's giant head and they reuse it multiple times in the right. episode which i think is intentional uh-huh. to sort of like call totally. back to like in the 30s that they would do that sort of thing of just like well, let's just reuse this shot wherever you need it so that felt particularly simpsony to me but yeah totally I wish I had more, but they so completely parody this movie front to back that, like, my brain just keeps going back to the Treehouse of Horror parody because it's, Mm -hmm. like, it kind of hits every note in this movie. Um, Totally. But the dinosaurs. Yeah, they do a great job. Yeah, everything but but the dinosaurs. dinosaurs, He fights a T-Rex, I think, very briefly. Oh. Yeah, you, you know what? You're right. Yeah, I he fights he a T-Rex, and then they they like they like hit the gong or whatever, and uh, he gets distracted, and it bites his arm, and he goes, "No, no, yeah. no!" Yeah, 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 that's true. That's but for true. as much as the film it actually takes up, no one talks about it when we talk about Kong the dinosaurs, except for us. That's true. Length. Yeah. Okay, well, in terms of performance, Nate, how did this movie fare? Like, obviously, now <laughs> ninety years later, we're still talking about it, so I assume it it left a lasting impression but you know sometimes with movies like this we're shocked to find out that these classic films actually didn't do all that well upon original release is that is that the case here or was this a sensation a sensation like undoubtedly a a huge (laughs) sensation the show of them like going to see kong was kind of like this movie it seems like in terms of the reception Mm. So it played at Radio City Music Hall and the Roxy Theater in in New York. The engagement had uh, attracted 50,000 people on its first day what? to just those locations. Uh, and for the first five days, they did 10 shows daily with 10,000 seats. Which is just like hard to even wrap your head around how many people were seeing that movie all at once, you know? Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, just insane. Um, in terms of just the money side of things, you know, the budget was, you know, $672,000 in 1933 money. And the box office in just the 1933 showing was $1.8 million. So very Holy solid. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, adjusting for inflation, just for those who are curious, that's the equivalent of $30 million today so that's not too shabby yeah and then the you know we can't forget too that this movie was re-released multiple times so it was re-released in 1938 1942 and 1952 and through that they made an additional 2.6 million dollars um so not too shabby um in fact so not too shabby that it actually saved rko (laughs) from bankruptcy it was like okay, it was go. in receivership when this came out and they were able to save the company basically because of this movie. Um, so that's yeah, sensation. Um, all that said, uh, when it comes to the Academy Awards, no wins, no nominations for anything. Mm. Um, C- continuing the tradition of overlooking horror oh. as a awards contender. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And well, really that's... starting the tradition because, like, when did the yeah, Emmy Awards yeah, start? Yeah. It was like not, early yeah. 1930s, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. But like for reference, I wanted to just read this list of these were the movies that were nominated for outstanding production, which was the equivalent of best movie, right? So we got A Farewell to Arms, Forty Second okay. Street, 
I am a yep. fugitive from a chain game. Okay. Uh, lady for a day. <laughs> I'm unfamiliar. Little uh, women. Okay. Uh, the okay. private life of Henry VIII. She done Wait. him wrong. Smiling through. Okay. State oh, that fair. Classic. And the yep. winner, Cavalcade. Never heard of it. <laughs> I know. I was like, I, I, I know the names of some of these, but I don't think I've seen <laughs> any of these movies. And most of the things I think I know from like other stuff, like A Farewell to Arms. Like I know the book, A Farewell to Arms. Yeah. Or Little Women. But like I, I have not seen any of these movies. And yet King Kong, wow. you know, is still watched by many and still showing. So, yeah, it's got a legacy. The other thing that I, I want to bring up is just two critical receptions to this, which I thought were pretty interesting. So here's one from 1933. This is Joe Bigelow writing in Variety. He says, while not believing it, audiences will wonder how it's done. If they wonder, hmm. they'll talk. And that talk plus the curiosity the advertising should incite ought to draw business all over. Kong mystifies as well as it horrifies and may open up a new medium for scaring babies via the screen. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. There, I feel like that touched on a bunch of things that we've talked about of just like the horror Absolutely, aspect, yeah. but also the reaction of like, yeah, people don't really believe it, but they're still like, wow. The other review that I wanted to bring up was, of course, from Roger Ebert writing in mm. 2002, which this was kind of an interesting retrospective take. So uh, I think this was the beginning of one of his articles. He wrote, On good days, I consider Citizen Kane the seminal film of the sound era. But on bad days, it is King Kong. <laughs> that is not to say I dislike King Kong, which in this age of technical perfection uses its very naivety to generate a kind of creepy awe. It's hmm. simply to observe that this low-rent monster movie and not the psychological puzzle of Kane pointed the way toward the current era of special effects, science fiction, cataclysmic destruction, and nonstop shocks. So I thought that was that was another sort of interesting take, again, just really tying it from 1933, not necessarily to 2002, but I think more so like the 80s and the 90s in a lot of ways, and the sort of yeah, totally. era of the Spielberg blockbuster and all of that. It still kind of feels like you're talking shit about horror. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. But it does also kind of jive with like the way the last year of big budget movies have kind of been going of like again not to cgi goop of it all but like there's been a lot of these very very costly visually impressive films that haven't really resonated with audiences and the the two big groundbreaking films this year were barbie which granted ip but like a female focused comedy mm -hmm. And a three-hour biopic about the guy who invented the atom bomb. So it is interesting how Roger always does seem to be tapped in. Yeah, he's all right, I guess. Yeah, he's all right. He's fine. <laughs> well, that brings us to the part where we sort of get our verdicts and whether or not the strengths outweigh the weaknesses. Didi, you're our guest, so I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Is this a film that people should be like checking out? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because like as we're talking about like what are the bits in here that are Simpsons-y and I'm just like it's like verse engineering like Simpsons wouldn't necessarily even be existing in its current form without stuff like this. Like when people totally. see it and they're like oh Citizen Kane is like reminds me too much of this. I'm like no 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 no. 
that exists because <laughs> it's a citizen Kane. So, I mean, you're right. Yeah, like, I'm not going to defend the part in the middle that we all think takes a little bit too long. Because even though I don't mind it, I totally get that. And I'm not going to defend any of the treatment of the people who are not white in this film. But I am going to say, <laughs> like, I still love this movie. I still return to it. It still upsets me. And I think that means something. Mm-hmm. Totally. Nate, how about you? I would say, yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, you hit it on the head, Didi. I mean, I think it's effective to me. It's also just seminal. But also, for me, it really taps into that same love of special effects that I've had since I was a kid. And I was trying to make stop motion films of my own with like plasticine in my basement. You know what I mean? Like the ingenuity of what they're trying to do. Uh, even though it's like big and messy in some ways is so endearing to me and just gets me really excited when I watch it. And so from that perspective, uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. And Adam, what about you? Adam. <laughs> Look, um, one of this us, isn't a- one of us. <laughs> yeah, okay. This isn't a bad movie. Paint Your Wagon was objectively a bad movie. Um, We have watched worse films in this show. I do think it's an incredibly dated film, and therefore, for a certain audience member, could be very difficult to sit through. If you do not have an appreciation for the artistry and the history, this movie's going to be hard to watch. And in many respects, I kind of wish that I saw it as a eight-year-old or a 13-year-old and not a 35-year-old, you know, back when I had less of an understanding of how stuff like this was even done and really could watch it more like an audience member from 1933 and just sort of appreciate the spectacle. And even if I thought, oh, this is a little silly and like a little bit ropey, I'd still be much more like, but how did they do that? Whereas now, because I kind of know that, the magic is a little bit lost So I think if you're someone who is a completionist, who wants to see the classics, who wants to take in film history and understand like how we got from here to there, then yes. It's funny too, whenever we watch these movies and we sort of do the like, would you recommend it kind of section, I'm always thinking about my son who's now, he's a little over two years old and he's still a little young for this. But I'm always like thinking about like, well, what would I want to show my kid and what do I think he would appreciate? You know, something like The Karate Kid or Mary Poppins where, you know, not yet, obviously, but I think there will be an age where I can show those movies to him and he will still enjoy them even if he maybe thinks, oh, that's old. Um, this is one of those movies that I think if I waited too long, there's no way he's sitting through it. <laughs> but if I hit him right at that right age, mm-hmm. this could be the kind of movie that, to your point, Nate, inspires that love of cinema and makes him go, how do they do that? I yeah. want to do that. That's so cool. So, yes, I think there's something there. But maybe don't watch it as a 35-year-old who's, you know, seen this done to death over the last 90 years of various you know, references and parodies and all that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What about, what What would you recommend as a double feature with this movie? Um, mm. You know, we call it extra credit. Something else that people who loved this might also love, 
or maybe a, a, a better version even of the same sorts of ideas or that kind of thing. Didi, do you have any thoughts? Oh my God, give me a minute to think. That's a really good question. <laughs> I'm like, Adam, go, Adam, go. Let me think. Well, it's funny. I know exactly. I mean, granted, I kind of knew that this question was coming, but <laughs> I we've touched on it. And I, I, I think the answer is Jurassic Park. I think Jurassic Park does a lot of the same ideas. And it's this sort of hubris of man thinking, look at what I've created. And, you know, the Jeff Goldblum thing of like, the question is, should you have done? I can't do mm-hmm. a Jeff Goldblum. Impression. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. try, but you know, you know the line I'm talking about. Nature finds um, a way. But I think. Nature finds a way. I think that film really is touching on a lot of the same ideas. It's this idea of the spectacle of nature and how nature overtakes man. And I saw that movie not as a little kid. I saw it as a grown adult and it still like blew me away. Mm -hmm. And I think it still works. It's already now like almost 30 years old. But I think it would make for a very interesting double feature to see like the progression and then also sort of seeing those themes perhaps elevated or at least taken in a different direction and a bit more modernized. So mm-hmm. that would be and my choice. The other the other interesting thing too about Jurassic Park as a double feature that I forgot to mention earlier, but the gate in Jurassic Park is modeled after the King Kong gate. Oh, totally. That totally tracks. Yeah. yeah. And and also like originally they wanted to do the dinosaurs as stop motion. And then they yes. were like, eh, we're not going to pull it off. But we have this other technology that we maybe can make it work. And I think they were better for it in the end. But yeah, totally agree. I think there's lots of through lines. And in some ways, they pull off that Carl Denemark better in Jurassic Park, in my opinion, of the kind of cynical reading of like, you know, they're just going to keep doing this. <laughs> like, you know, humans are the monsters, that kind of thing, at least some of them. On a similar note, I feel like I, I love Prometheus, and I would actually recommend that as a double feature. It t- ties more into the initial setup of this movie, of this sort of, like, expedition to a strange place with an eccentric asshole who <laughs> is tricking everyone else into being along for the ride. And then, of course, like, a monster, I guess, to your earlier point about the definition of horror, D.D., I, I think it's a really great movie and has lots of lore. And, you know, if you're geeky about the alien universe like I am, you might like it or you might be like, oh, this took all the mystery out of this franchise for me. <laughs> I think Adam and I disagree on that one. Yeah, I'm not I, I'm not the biggest fan of Prometheus. I don't mind Alien Covenant, but I do mm. think that, yeah, my biggest complaint with those movies is like explaining this was not the thing that makes it scarier. <laughs> I think the less you know, the better. But there's definitely moments in that film that are genuinely arresting. So, Okay, I have my answer. All right. Uh, good. I was going to say, we've stalled long enough. I know, now, right? Me. You guys have treaded such good water. Thank you. Um, I was just like, do I do another 1930s horror film? Like, do we go like Invisible Man or like something like that and kind of mm. get into the history of horror? Because, of course, like I'm like, if I'm going to do a double feature, it's because I'm going to show it to someone because I want to watch them watch it and get really excited about it. Right, yeah, totally. So instead of mm. double feature, I'm going to do triple feature. And so I'm thinking mm. this and then I think it's them, the giant ant movie from the 50s and then Godzilla. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then Godzilla as well because I want to show... Mm. I would love to have like an evening of looking at all the different ways we are like projecting our issues on like this gigantic thing because it's not a monolith and monster films are not just like this is the one size fits all this is what we're dealing with and one of the reasons i love studying horror films so much is like 
the monster sometimes stays the same and the people are the same, but the relationship changes drastically over time depending on what the you know anxieties are within the culture at the time and so i like the idea of maybe approaching it It it's like okay this is one gigantic thing and this is how we dealt with it but here's (laughs) almost you know kind of a stand-in for that and this is the other ways that we're dealing with it i find that i that would be really interesting and now i kind of want to go do that yeah Yeah, i love that and you know godzilla is i think it has its 70th anniversary next year um so you know maybe we'll have to have you back for that one i'll I'll, I'll talk about (laughs) movies anytime and then, I mean, we haven't talked about it, but I feel like it bears repeating or bears mentioning because we are the nerds that we are, Nate. Uh, Donkey Kong. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, uh, the, obviously the original Donkey Kong game is kind of like based on this, you know, the ripple effect of Kong through popular culture over the next 90 years cannot be overstated. And, uh, you know, we referenced Rampage, but yeah, Donkey Kong and then the various parodies and and, and yeah, like to your point, Didi, like Godzilla and the other sort of monster movies that sort of come full circle in the last, I guess it was like 10 years when they sort of rebooted that whole series when you had the new Godzilla and Kong Skull Island and then eventually Godzilla versus Kong just a couple years ago. So you cannot escape the giant ape movie. So <laughs> totally. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Didi, thank you so much for joining this us. Great. This was such a pleasure chatting yeah. with you and getting your insight yeah, you. as a horror aficionado and expert. Uh, certainly more of an expert than, than Nate or I. Is there <laughs> anything you'd like to plug b- before we move on? Oh, God. Um, this is being October is a very busy season for me, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> I will say if anyone wants to find me, I'm still using Twitter and I still am calling it Twitter. Um, and on there, yeah. <laughs> it will always, it will be, always Twitter. be Twitter until it no longer exists. Yes. It will always exactly, be Twitter. Yeah. And you so bet. you can find me on there at DD Krim, D E D E C R I M. And I always post anything I've written on there and I try to defend films that I really like and stay away from negative stuff on there. Not that I'm that wholesome. I just don't have time for it. Um, <laughs> so if anyone wants to look me up it's and see what I'm up to, that's it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I nice. just, I'm, I'm tired guys. But yeah, so if you want to find me in whatever I might be publishing at any time, that's where it is. Amazing. Awesome. Well, next time we will be chatting about The Mask of Zorro and the Simpson episode EIEI Annoyed Grunt from season 11. I am so excited about this one because, again, talk about like delayed enjoyment. I did not see this movie until I think it was during the like pandemic. I watched it for the very first time and I loved every moment of it. I'm sort of spoiling some stuff here, but yeah, I so I'm super excited to chat about this one, Nate. I think it's Me gonna too. be a really, really fun episode. But until then, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans, brought to you by thatshelf.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever the hell it's called now. I guess it's called Apple Podcasts yeah. now. But please leave a review. Five stars would be nice. Share this episode <laughs> with the Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. Maybe we'll do a contest sometime soon. When I worked for a Canadian reality TV show, we ran an online contest on Twitter. And uh, <laughs> you could win a signed placard not from the cast of the show but it was signed by me <laughs> uh, the assistant editor on the series <laughs> and the I, the funny funny story there is that it was won by Nate it was won by Bill because he I they that. literally 
so Dee Dee, Bill is one of our other friends from high school, and <laughs> I did not pick this. It was like totally random. Our producer came out and was like, okay, so the winner is uh, Bill Watterson, and I literally was like, are you joking? And they're like, no, why? I was like, that's literally one of my best friends. So, um, so he that's won a so signed funny. placard by the assistant editor of Ponathon Canada. So yeah, maybe we'll do a contest and Bill will win once again, but uh, sounds good. In the meantime, until then, we shall, Nate. See you on the Plex. See you on the Plex. Technical issues aside, you know, <laughs> two and a half hours on on a ninety-year-old monster yeah. movie. Not bad. That was legit a good conversation, guys. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, yeah. Dee. That was Thank really you. that was really fun. And it was so nice to have like some like I said, you know, I I was being sincere, having an expert who actually knows what they're talking about and stuff. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Us goobers <laughs> who are just uh, making shit up as we go.